0: As you're locked down in your homes during this covid 19 pandemic you may be finding yourself consuming more books movies and television than you normally do maybe you're doing it to distract yourself from the anxiety inducing news maybe you're really missing sports like me i'm missing kenny charles and Shaq and the nba on tnt crew so maybe you're subbing in more netflix time in its place maybe you had a spring break trip canceled and you're consoling yourself with whatever that stupid tiger show is everyone's talking about, whatever your reason, every story that you consume is a cultural text and it's filled with theology. It's a window, a window into a narrative vision of the world that, that at least some percentage of our culture holds to as true, good, or beautiful. In today's episode, we're gonna talk about how you can transform what's on your screen or in your paperback novel into an opportunity to do theology. Theology is nothing more than any attempt at meaning-making which seeks to understand the nature and ways of God. Quest to understand purpose, beauty, good and evil, heroism and tragedy, These may not initially seem like what you may imagine as theology when you think of the word theology, but they are. These are efforts at exploring theology because these quests through what people perceive as being true, good, and beautiful, they they beckon us to consider where truth, goodness, and beauty come from. These sort of mini quests are all networked together into the highest quest, the search for what is ultimate reality, the search for what is necessary, the search for what should be enthroned above all as the author of our guiding story. We don't do theology in a vacuum. We are all inhabiting a culture. Uh, we're, We're all surrounded and immersed in a culture. We're all surrounded and immersed in what we can call cultural texts. Yes, cultural texts. Cultural texts don't have to be written messages like a book. Cultural texts could be a book. They could be a book like a history book. Cultural texts could be a fictional book. But a cultural text could also be a beautiful gallery of art in a museum, or an internet page of memes on Reddit. As we talked about before in our Christ in Culture series, all aesthetic creations are tangible, visible expressions of people's invisible values, or what we've called, using Dwight Hopkins' language, spirit. Aesthetic is the visible manifestation of spirit. That's the domain, that invisible domain of our deepest values. And what sits atop, and what sits enthroned on our our hierarchy of values is what functionally serves as God. So when we explore the aesthetic creations of people, and we do our due diligence, we learn how to read those aesthetic expressions, when we learn how to read cultural texts, we begin to see a window into what people worship as God. Learning to read these aesthetics, learning to read these cultural texts is important because they are objectified expressions of people's picture of God. They are manifestations of that which they can think no higher than. Remember, we've talked about we've always we've kind of always put a spin on Anselm of Canterbury, his argument that God was that which which one can think no higher than, and we've put a spin on that, maybe a bit of a postmodern spin even, <laughs> on that argument to to get us to think about how everybody has something which they can think no higher than, and that thing is God. So when we talk about reading cultural texts, and we talk about maybe reading a story which the story is telling us something about heroism and virtue and what good and evil look like, something that you might think is as popcorn, as a Marvel movie, or a superhero movie. Those stories are actually stories that have within them these deeply embedded symbols, these theological symbols, because as we dig and we follow the trail of those symbols, what lies at the end of that is somebody's picture of that which they can think no higher than. What lies at the end of that journey is someone's picture of God. So, to understand culture and and to be able to read texts, cultural texts, to be able to do that, it gives us a window into the sometimes competing and sometimes complementary pictures of what people believe God is. Theologian Kevin Van Hooser, who I'm a huge fan of, and I'm using much of his work today in today's episode from a great book. It's on my recommended reading list on Patreon. You can go get that for free. I put that out this week. To help some of you who are maybe like trying to just dive into doing theology or kind of interested in reading some of the things that sh- have shaped my work that I present in this podcast, you should check out his book called Everyday Theology. And in that book, Van Hooser has this wonderful, wonderful quote. He says this, quote, Understanding culture is a matter of discerning patterns, especially as they relate between embedded parts and their larger, meaningful holes, end quote. For me personally, I've kind of been on a bit of a Star Trek kick lately. I've been binging Star Trek. <laughs> Some of you might go, how does any human being do that? Others of you are like, yes, live long and prosper, Paul. But even something like Star Trek, oh, you know, as I digest that, what I'm actually doing uh, is I am consuming these these cultural patterns. I'm, I'm consuming micro patterns that are part of this embedded network of meaning. And it points to a larger narrative whole, a narrative that the creators, the content creators, we could call them the cultural text authors, are telling about their vision of the world. And I love I love Star Trek. I've been doing, uh, going through, I mean, I have I've, think The Next Generation is my favorite series. So I've been kind of re-going through that and even the next Star Trek The Next Generation movies and then just recently got into um, Deep Space Nine, which I I actually never watched before, but a lot of Trekkies say, you know, that's the one to watch. And it's kind of been, I had a long trip uh, on the road recently driving and just, went through a bunch of episodes in the in the car ride and uh one of the beautiful things about sci-fi like that is you can you can see some of the the quests more clearly. You can see the quests to f- tell a narrative that helps people wrestle with questions about well, what does it mean to be human, right? What is it what does it mean for their is there good and evil? What does that look like? What does virtues like heroism? What does what do those things look like even in the you know 24th century in this fictional world to delve into that is to delve into a microcosm of theology because these embedded parts make up a more meaningful whole a meta narrative and our meta narratives are ultimately informed by that thing which we can think no higher Today, though, I I want to I want to talk specifically as, as I'm talking about you know that's not exactly a a new pop culture phenomenon Star Trek especially the things I'm bringing up like the Next Generation you know for some of you younger listeners that's like archaic to you but I I want to talk specifically today about how to theologically read popular culture. Because we could talk about high art, and um, and I, I love that stuff. It's, it's wonderful, but I, I think it's helpful, and might be most helpful for you today, to talk specifically about how to read popular culture. Because popular culture is the predominant domain in which most Americans are theologically shaped. cultural texts of popular culture become the shared environment by which everything from the sort of trivial office water cooler dialogue happens to being the images that flash in your mind when maybe you're in a crucial dialogue with your spouse about what each of you are envisioning the ideal life looking like for yourself, for your family it's the images and the stories of popular cultural texts that whether we are aware of it or not shape our imaginations now i grew up in an era in which there was an immense amount of suspicion about cultural texts and i think we should have a healthy amount of suspicion and and we are going to talk about you know, the critiques that we should have as we digest cultural texts. But I think it's also important for me to highlight, and I'm going to talk more about this later in today's episode, but it's also important to highlight that to to confess that we consume cultural texts isn't to confess That we are consuming something inherently sinful, as if all messages within our culture are broken. We've talked quite a bit about this in our Christ and Culture series. I don't think that's a helpful, a helpful or a true perspective. So being aware of what we are consuming is helpful because not only is it helpful for us to strain out that which shapes our vision in a negative way and shapes our values in a negative way, but it's also helpful for us so that we can celebrate what is true, good, and beautiful in our culture. To not be able to read popular culture can, though, it can. I do want to highlight this because this is something, you know, th- maybe the, the parents of the 80s and 90s who uh, were throwing out their TVs and only having their, their kids watch Bible Man or what was that singing Bible, what was it called? Salty, was that his fame? or Adventures in Odyssey, they, they weren't completely in the wrong because there is some devastating effects that mindless consumption of popular culture can have if one were to just mindlessly assimilate a cultural text. They will find, and they might not be aware of this right away, this is some of the truth of maybe that Christ against culture attitude. We don't need to wholesale abandon it because some of their suspicions and some of the things that were held by that generation uh, of evangelicals in the 80s and 90s has kernels of truth to it, and maybe there's a lot of truth to it. But if one were to just mindlessly assimilate a cultural text— whether it's you know just going through a, a series of novels or whether it's binging something on Netflix or watching something on the the traditional media of television or going to the movie theater if you do that mindlessly and you just mindlessly assimilate a cultural test, text there is a danger that those texts can have a way of hacking one's value system and structure and what they have, what this effect can have as one mindlessly assimilates a cultural text is that that cultural text can, in a way, begin to morph into our pre existing value structure and begin to assimilate and change that value structure. That is the concern, not just our parents' generations have, but to any sort of Christ against culture, Christian subgroup that ex- has existed throughout church history. Uh, we could go all the way back. This would predate even the the birth of the church. But we could think of even the Essene community, the community that preserved the Dead Sea Scrolls and lived outside of Jerusalem. It's the community that John the Baptist was likely a part of. You know, those that Essene community they they were onto something. They were onto some of the dangers that happened as people settled in major metropolitan areas like Jerusalem and they were concerned about the the influence of Hellenism that larger Greek culture assimilating their own religious values and you know they they kind of had a point. Think of you know think of John the Baptist's rebuke of King Herod. I mean King Herod had had adapted a what was from John's perspective, a non-biblical attitude towards what the the function of marriage and human sexuality should be. So as he called Herod out on that, you know, he was calling Herod out on the way that Herod had probably been assimilated to a particular spirit of that age, which, you know, which John the Baptist saw was not in keeping with the reign and rule of God. What can happen as one mindlessly assimilates cultural texts is that as that value system, as our intrinsic value system begins by the consumption of these stories to potentially be as we don't critically process them and evaluate them, if we assimilate them into our own value structure, they will change our values and ultimately our values are informed by a meta narrative we believe about reality and god and what that that meta narrative comes from is from the god or the picture of god that we worship and so what can end up happening is if we are not careful if we mindlessly assimilate cultural texts what we can end up having is ultimately the gods of that Cultural text author, or we might consider the content creator. Maybe it's a, uh, you know, an entire network that p- has particular values that they're trying to transmit those values into stories, and and some of those values might be values that descend from what we might say are a false god or a false picture of God, with without some careful analysis and reading of that cultural text, what can end up happening is that we slowly find ourselves straying into—this might seem harsh, but I think it's a true statement, especially those of you that listen to this podcast for quite some time. I think you get what I mean when I say this. We can stray into worshiping false gods Simultaneously, though, that sort of Christ against culture approach, if we go too far in the ditch and we go, I'm so concerned about being mindlessly assimilated by cultural texts that I'm going to try to just have an all out rejection, to reject any consumption of popular culture. Doing that, though, I think completely neglects the fact that the light of Christ is present and working in the world and in our culture. Wholesale rejection of culture and particularly as we're talking about today popular culture is nearly impossible it's so hard to do i think about back to my days in the 90s you know 90s christian youth group kid and it's like hey we're not going to listen to nirvana but here's this dc talk tape which like the most popular song sounds like nirvana with some like quasi rapping (laughs) going on, Jesus freak, right? And it's like, we're not really rejecting all of culture. We're trying on one hand to say that we reject it, but it's really hard. You have to dress a particular way. You have to have a language. You tell stories. How do you tell stories? You tell stories through language and through images and symbols. It's, It's nearly, I'd say it's impossible to wholesale reject popular culture. And I'd also add this from my anecdotal experience is that this is for you parents out there and you're trying to navigate, you know, how, how do you help your kids read culture as they grow and interact in, in in the culture that we find ourselves in. In my experience, those young people who were raised in homes that attempted to do some sort of wholesale rejection of popular culture... um only fostered a sort of rebellious attitude in that young person so by the time they got to be an adult they had grown to associate christianity with the rejection of everything even that which is good in popular culture and what happens when they become an adult and their parents can't sort of hover and protect them and forced them to reject popular culture, is they've been told their entire life that there is, you know, uh, you know, the way of Jesus, there is, you know, the way of the kingdom of God, and then there's the way of the world, and there's the way of our culture, but then they get out and they actually see enough truth, goodness, and beauty oftentimes in these cultural texts, and they've been told, well, it's one way or the other, and I can't make sense of this goodness that I'm experiencing in my culture, in, you know, in this... Uh, this friend that I've made, that's an atheist, and they they tell a, a a very compelling story of what goodness and truth and beauty look like. That oftentimes, when they're faced with that sort of dichotomy, they just go, "Yeah, I think I'm just done with the church thing." <laughs> you know, so it doesn't often go in the way that people, with probably some good motivations, though they might be too fearful and maybe um, too paranoid about the darkness in culture. Um, Those that really, really try so hard to suppress that stuff oftentimes are unsuccessful in the fostering of disciples of Jesus in their children as their children age. So perhaps a better alternative might be what I hope to suggest to you guys today. That wholesale rejection of popular culture is not only impossible. Not only does it produce oftentimes the, the contrary result that parents hope it has in their kids, but when we do that, we often miss out on the joy, the joy that it is to celebrate the truth, goodness, and beauty of Christ's light as it displays itself in our unique culture. Culture-free Christianity is impossible. Van Hooser, whose book I referred to towards the beginning of this podcast, he gives a really compelling case in his everyday theology for what pop culture texts actually do and why we should care. What do these cultural texts do? Well, first, pop culture, cultural texts of any kind, they communicate. They, whether we are aware of it or not, they are telling us stories and values. They're communicating values to us. Cultural texts share their meaning with us as much by the aesthetic form or the the packaging of it as by their content. Think of a, a visually stunning film, a beautiful film that you've seen recently. What was the last movie that the visual, the cinematography Just blew you away. You know, that's as much of a communication of a value as it is the dialogue of an actor or act, uh, you know, a character in a movie. And this is one of the areas in which, like, the sort of kind of substitute Christian culture movies frequently fail. They don't have the budget, they might not have the value, they might actually be lacking a Christ like value. They might be lacking the desire for the beautiful that, that should be birthed in those who are who are the people of God. They might be lacking that value in such a way that they create these sorts of Christian films that are so hideous. I mean, I'm just talking not even in the the, the content, though they might be trying to tell some sort of story that has a moral value in it that's good, but by the way that they're shot and the the cinematography and the, the set designs, they can be <laughs> hideous. And so we have to think about how cultural texts communicate their meaning in the form and packaging just as much as in what we might consider to be like the, the propositional dialogue that's happening in those stories. So I, I I so appreciate it. I love I love Wes Anderson films I love those movies. Uh, not only is it appeal to my sort of kind of dry and maybe often dark <laughs> sense of of humor, but I so value the aesthetic of it. I, I so value the unique when I see a Wes Anderson. Uh, when I see a trailer for a movie, I, you can instantly tell within the first five seconds that it's a Wes Anderson film. He's got his own, uh, own aesthetic, and it, it transmits this particular value, and it's a unique sense of beauty, and I really appreciate it. But that's just as much a part of the meaning of that cultural text as it is like the dialogue of the actors. Most cultural texts communicate not so much In the propositional information as much as in the entire aesthetic of the artwork. This is what made, for example, Camus' The Plague, which we talked about in the last episode, to me so compelling, was because in that book, it wasn't like you were being beaten over the head with sorts of existentialist propositional information alone. It was in the story, it was in the narrative that you were picking up on the ideas. And it was done in such a a wonderful way, right? Dostoevsky does that. Dostoevsky might be the best at that, right? I mean, what a master at communicating meaning without just like beating you over the head with like doctrinal propositions, right? So You know, usually the better the art, the more sophisticated the layers of meaning are in that cultural text or in that aesthetic, in that work of art. So, you know, we should be aware, first of all, that pop culture and all cultural texts, they communicate. What else do pop cultural texts do? Well, they orient us. They give us a a map. A map of meaning, they give us a compass that help orient people in the world in a particular direction. They orient people towards values and meta narratives, and the gods which sit atop those values and narratives. We've reached a point in our society where cultural texts and pop cultural texts in particular are probably replacing traditional institutions like family, school, and church. It's cultural texts, it's Netflix, it's television, it's movies, it's books, it's YouTube, it's memes that are the primary arbiters of the values of our culture, probably more so than school or church or family this is fairly new you know this is in, in human history this is a pretty a pretty new phenomenon we've always had every culture and civilization has cultural texts but we are more bombarded by cultural texts than any other civilization in human history and so this is this is really unique and it's a unique position for us to be in let's say as you're someone that might be a f- a follower of Jesus, to consider what actually has more impact on shaping people's theology in a given week, the hour to the hour and a half that they spent on in church and worship on a Sunday morning, or like the six, seven hours they spent during the week watching Game of Thrones or The Office or whatever it may be that people are into Which one has more of a theological effect? You have to say it's the cultural text. It's the pop culture. It's the aesthetic of pop culture that has more of an effect on people's value system and their theology than these traditional institutions do. What else does pop culture do? Not only does it communicate, not only does it orient people and give them a map for how they are to live in the world, but pop culture also reproduces it spreads it spreads and transmits beliefs values ideas fashions practices and this may not be the best word to use in these days but the reproduction of those values through popular culture texts it, it, it it goes viral, right? The the reproduction in our society is like is like a virus. And that has a negative connotation. It doesn't have to be negative, but that might be the best way to think about it. Because as we ingest, as we consume the cultural texts and as those cultural texts sort of hack our meaning making systems they reorient us they communicate they reorient and they they begin to maybe shape new values and beliefs people act out those values and beliefs in the world and they transmit those to other people and then they go and tell stories they might create their own cultural texts right and not everybody's working in Hollywood but there's a lot of people that maybe have podcasts, YouTube channels, or they're, they're breaking down, you know, their, their, their favorite television show. They might have a book club, right? That book club is a way that the cultural text is reproduced, and it can reproduce exponentially. Think of meme culture. I mean, this is like, you know, for sociologists, a fairly recent phenomenon, right? Think of meme culture and the way that a meme can have this sort of like, you know, a, a viral effect. A meme goes viral when it is disseminated in the same way that a, like we're experiencing with the COVID-19 virus. It passed on from one person to the next. Someone else shares it. They share it on their social media. And what you have all of a sudden, for better or worse, depending on what's communicated is the transmission of values right they're spread from person to person like a virus so pop culture whether that's in the traditional media of television and box office movies or whether it's in meme culture or in youtube the it, these These cultural texts can reproduce values, beliefs, and structures of religion in an exponential viral way. Pop culture also cultivates, it cultivates the human spirit, it it actually... The consumption of cultural texts is an act of spiritual formation because as we understand these texts to contain within them theological claims, claims about the very nature and being of reality and the structure of reality, and and as it invites us into seeing the world a particular way, that is an act of spiritual formation. Think about, for those of you that listen and you, you are Christians and you attend church, think about the practices of spiritual formation that might be employed at your church. At our church, we have some common elements like the singing of songs together, the public proclamation of scripture, the public pro- proclamation of prayers, the listening to of sermons. Um, you know, those are just a few of the things that happen, The the practice of the Lord's table, right? But think about each one of those as an active spiritual formation. Think about the public reading of scripture. Why is that an active spiritual formation? Because even the consumption of those scriptures, whether it's just even given without explanation, it has the ability for that particular narrative to enter into our value system and to reprogram it, to reorient it, maybe to buttress it and to strengthen it. That's one of the great reasons why we're instructed to not forsake our the assembly of believers together which is like impossible to do in person right now but many of us are trying our best to try to simulate that online doing that is so important because we consume many different texts cultural texts throughout the week and sometimes the things that we consume are not in keeping with what we believe as christians is the ultimate true meta narrative and so what we have to do is we have to be reshaped and reformed by what we believe is the is a true the the, the true meta narrative so culture pop cultural texts pop culture aesthetics they they are spiritually formative the the ideal forms us the spirit uh, made manifest in the aesthetic, as we consume the aesthetic and as we look at the aesthetic, we're looking through a window into that content creator's vision of God. So now that you have a good idea of the value of cultural texts, of pop culture, and now that you have a good idea of what pop culture does in us, in any cultural text, let's talk about some practical tips and strategies for how to read theologically, to theologically read popular culture. Piece of advice number one. You should be aware that reading cultural texts and to try to theologically read A cultural text of any kind, whether it's a movie, a television show, a meme, a book, should be aware that it isn't an exact science. Cultural texts convey their propositions. They convey their propositions about what it means to be human. They convey their propositions about what an ultimate value system should look like, what's beautiful, true, and good. They communicate that most often not by offering explicit arguments but rather by displaying them in the aesthetic. They display them in concrete forms. They don't often just give you and beat you over the head with an explicit argument. When they do, we are usually we usually look at those and go, that's, that's not very good art. That's not very good storytelling. So the old expression, it's more of an art than a science, couldn't be more true when it comes to reading cultural texts and reading cultural texts theologically. This isn't an exact science, but that's okay. Just because it's not an exact science doesn't mean that we shouldn't partake in it and attempt to engage in the reading of these texts. In all humility, we have to confess that as a finite human interpreter, we only have a partial glimpse of the story we don't see it all we are seeing it through our oftentimes our colored lenses of our own experiences and our own vested interests right i confess that when i go into a movie i i i am looking i'm looking for the deepest meaning possible and sometimes I confess that I I see things that I go, I wonder if that was intended to be communicated or not. But it's good. It's good that I'm aware of that. It's good that I'm aware that I have vested interest, that, that I also only see a part of the whole. There's a whole domain of ideas that maybe I've never been exposed to that the the author of that cultural text is trying to communicate that I just can't see because I've never seen the world from that perspective. And this gets to a second bit of advice I've grabbed from Van Hooser and from the wisdom of Kevin Van Hooser when it comes to reading, doing everyday theology and reading cultural texts. The second piece of advice I would give in strategy as we begin to try to read cultural texts is we do, we need to be aware of our biases and we need to be aware of our convictions. Those biases, those convictions, they're they're not inherently bad. We might be biased in a way that's towards the truth, but we just have to acknowledge that the culture that we've inhabited has helped shape a particular perspective. And having an awareness of that is good. Maybe there's something in a cultural text which helps us come face to face with something that we have been wrongly biased towards. Maybe we've had a conviction about a particular way that we thought the world was right, that we thought this way of seeing the world was right. And if we're not aware that we we carry these things, which within us are are convictions that have been shaped by cultural other cultural uh, texts and interactions, we might miss out on some possible truth that this story is revealing to us. It's a truth that is part of the light of Christ, which again, all truth, goodness, and beauty it has a singular source. And this leads to the next piece of advice, the next strategy for leading or for reading cultural texts. Christians. And Van Hooser is so great in this encouragement. <laughs> we we should hear culture on its own terms. Let the author of that text tell their own story. We will miss the intended meaning that they are trying to communicate if we project our own interests back onto that. Right away, this isn't the same thing as just mindlessly assimilating what this cultural text is trying to tell us. That's I'm not not suggesting that. What I am suggesting is that we actually hear it in its own terms. We have to try to get. We do this with any text. We should be doing this with the biblical text. Is going. What is the intended communication of the author? And we do that with anything. The book, a movie, a meme. We ask, what are they trying to say? What story are they trying to tell? So that we can properly read it. It's not good reading to impose your own vision onto the book. That's bad Bible reading, it's a bad novel reading, it's bad history reading, it's bad any sort of reading, it's bad movie. Reading, even though you're watching it, we're all talking about this, even what we watch as a text that we read. Okay, so we need to hear it on its own terms. And when we do that, then we can move into the next step. We have to absorb that. And when we allow, and it's not mindlessly assimilating to receive and to hear the story, to hear the narrative, to see the values that they're trying to present the best we can in that author's own terms. And then when we do that, we can start moving more into the phase of analysis and critique, starting with the question, what is the biblical narrative? Well, we're not talking about proof texting. I'm not talking about listening to uh, you know, uh, a story, maybe you listen to a podcast series that's like a serial um, story, right? Maybe you're reading a book. I'm not saying that you proof text and you go, oh, where where's this Bible verse found in here? I'm not not talking about that. What I'm talking about is stepping back and going, what is the biblical narrative? and And what is the meta story that we believe, I believe, is the truth? And how does this potentially overlay with this cultural text? Does it map onto it in any way? Is there points in which there is dissonance? So, what's the biblical narrative, right? Like, traditionally, we might say the biblical narrative is that creatures, creation was created originally good, it's been corrupted, God's intentions for it's been good, it's always been intended to be good, but that it has gone through a process of corruption, there's been a fall, and creation is still groaning, it's still waiting in, as Romans says, an eager anticipation, right, to be renewed, to be transformed in the renewing work of Christ and by the power of his Spirit. It's awaiting consummation, the restoration of all things. So, when I do that and I step back, I can take a look at a story, a story that even might have a bunch of things that I think are terrible in it, right? You know, I, I can watch a, a movie that has um, a violent act in it and not go, well, that's communicating something good. Because the narrative intention, this is why I have to hear it on its own terms, the intention of perhaps the the, the telling or the showing of that violent act might actually be to show the fallenness of creation. And that might be something as I Kind of map on the meta narrative. I go, hey, there's this is actually a, a, a point of complementary uh, n- narratives. This isn't something I have to jettison. So I can see that in as I overlay the biblical narrative, because this is the thing that I go, I believe there is one God, one triune God revealed in Christ Jesus, right? And so my meta narrative comes from that. And the values come from that. And my behavior and practices flow as a pursuit of my values. The values are pursuing the meta story. The meta story is pursuing what I believe is the one true God revealed in Jesus. So as I do that and I map on that narrative after tr- understanding the narrative told by the author, I can look for points. Of complementary points. I can look for points of dissonance. So, this gets to the next piece of advice, the next strategy. The next strategy is to recognize that there is a, what Paul Tillich calls, the, a, a latent church in what we might even call, what we might often consider a secular culture. There is a latent church. There is a prophetic voice, even in culture, that might be the work of the Spirit, which has been poured out everywhere. There, the light of Christ is, uh, you know, anywhere there is truth, goodness, and beauty, is, that is the light of Christ at work. There's a singular source of it. So, what we need to do is need to understand there could be a possibility of there being a prophetic witness even in a piece of culture and pop culture that's made by someone who maybe even claims to be an atheist, there could be the possibility that there is doctrine in culture that we need to correct something about the biblical narrative we've actually been getting wrong. It could help correct distorted beliefs. It might even highlight things in the church. Man, there's there has been some scathing cultural texts about things like the horrific sexual improprieties that have taken place in the Catholic church. I mean, horrific stuff. And you know what? Maybe there is something for followers of Jesus in the Catholic church to, to look at in those stories and go, whoa, (laughs) there is like a prophetic word happening here. So if we can recognize that, we may be able to see things in our culture that is actually part of the light of Christ there There's four doctrines in particular right that can kind of strengthen this. Maybe you're having trouble with this idea that there is a latent church in culture uh there that the spirit is at work, even in what we some people might call secular pop culture, but I think we've got four biblical doctrines that actually you know that actually support and bear witness to there being the presence and activity of Christ and the spirit in pop culture. The first one, the first Christian doctrine that I think could bear witness to that um, is the incarnation. God became a human and stepped into a particular place in time, in culture, and, you know, was a Jewish man with Jewish, Jewish customs and spoke a language which was specialized and localized to a particular culture and dressed a particular way and so if that is the case there has to be things about maybe we just say well it was only jewish culture and it's like no i don't i don't think so <laughs> you know? as we read the rest of the new testament there's neither jew nor greek jew or gentile i should say not jew nor greek the jew or gentile right I, it, it's like God's working has been working in culture. Christ's incarnation wasn't just for Jewish people. It was actually for Gentiles. I mean, the New Testament's written in Greek. The Gospels transmitted on Roman roads. I should, you know, Greek, in the Greco-Roman world, on Roman roads. God has stepped in incarnationally into culture. I think the second doctrine we could use to affirm that is the doctrine of general revelation. Some knowledge of God is universally available. It's Romans 1. God created creation as a good gift. Culture is not inherently evil. We were given a cultural, humanity was given a cultural mandate. There's a picture in Revelation as we, we see the consummation and res, restoration of all things. We see the, the nations and the kings of the nations bringing their gifts into the city of God. They're unique cultural gifts. You know, the knowledge of God is universally available. He's at work in every culture to reveal himself. We have the God, similar to the general revelation, we could also just say the doctrine of common grace, God's grace. There's common grace. Maybe this is more Protestant emphasis for you reformers out there. He's given his common grace to all people. Right, so there people can participate and even reveal facets of God by just stepping into that common grace. Fourth doctrine would be the doctrine of the image of God, the Imago Dei. God's goodness, God's image and likeness, this residual goodness is in humanity. Though it has been marred by the fall, it's not completely gone right this this isn't to deny other doctrines like the the you know the the doctrine of universal sin that people are born to the world with a predisposition towards things which lead to destruction but that doesn't also dismiss that the image of god exists in every human being In every culture, there is the residual goodness and truth and beauty in all cultures, the image of God in men and women, everywhere. So as we've sort of received, as we've received the the, the message, as we've received acknowledging our weaknesses that we won't be able to see it all, we won't even be able to understand the author's intentions perfectly, as we acknowledge that and as we attempt to um, to hear the culture on its own terms and we, again, we sit back and then we, after we've received it, we, uh, we reflect on the biblical narrative and we go, can this map on? And we compare things and we acknowledge there is truth, goodness, and beauty in these cultural um these aesthetics of popular culture even when we do that we go all right is there evidence here of revelation is there evidence of there's is there god's fingerprints in this story somewhere can that be the thing that i hold on to and celebrate and in order to do that as i've already acknowledged the limitations of my own perspective the next step the next strategy for being able to digest and to read theologically into, to do theological readings of cultural texts, the next step is to move into discussion and dialogue with others about those texts. It's to compare. It's to, I, I love, I have, I mean, I kind of, another thing you're gonna be like, dude, Paul, you're such a nerd. I've got a Discord server um, for Star Wars talk with a handful of people. Uh, we go, you know, we started it when The Mandalorian came out. And there's a handful of guys and uh they just like talking Star Wars and after each episode we have discussion and dialogue. Right. And it doesn't mean that each time we're like going, Okay, right away, is there evidence of the biblical um in the you know, the the, the truth from the biblical narrative of God's goodness? Is there evidence of the fall? You know, it's not like he jumped to that right away but as you have discussion and dialogue about the cultural text what you begin to see is like the values transmitted you know you begin to see the ideas of what tr- what's true good and beautiful from the content creator from the author of that cultural text and that happens in dialogue so it's really good like i encourage you guys you know movie discussion groups are awesome you do that in your church do that with your friends on your college campuses, start a discussion group over a, a you know, maybe it's a series of films or, a, you know, this is the old fashioned book clubs. Those are great because in discussion and dialogue, we may be able to see things that we've missed. We may actually be able to see someone else in that group might come from a different place and they have a different perspective. And in dialogue, you can see something that you missed and maybe you go, man, maybe that was something I was like mindlessly assimilating as true, good, or beautiful, but you've brought up a perspective that's helped me see that it's, it might not be. The goal should be, I think, by the end of, you know, going through a process of reading and analyzing that that cultural text, we should be able to answer these questions, right? You should be able to answer these questions when you go and you do Um, readings, and cultural analysis of pop culture texts, whether it's, again, a book, movie, television, podcast, whatever it is. All right, here's the questions that you should be able to answer. First, who made this and why did they make it? At the end of the whole process, you know, at some point in the process, you should be asking that question. Who made this? Why did they make this? And try again to hear it on their own terms We don't want to impose something on them, but this is the thing we want to do. Why did somebody make this? Who made it? Why did they make it? Another question we should ask is what effect does this cultural text have on those who consume it? What is the intended effect, perhaps, as we begin to ask and try to delve into who made this, why did they make this, what was their intended effect what was the intended effect on those who uh the content creator and author who they uh wanted to consume it what effect did they intend it to have what intentions do they have towards you is it simply just to get money out of your wallet right like we we have to be aware of that in pop culture there's a lot of stuff out there where perhaps you know, the predominant motivation is to, you know, maybe not make something true, good or beautiful, but it might be to manipulate you to just get a product, uh, put a product out there that that takes some of your resources and gives it to them. That that could be it. And this is why this question, this is a really important question. What, I mean, what do you want me to believe, Right. What do you want me to believe? What do you want me to do? That's an important question that we ask as we step back and go the author the content creator of this they're a communicator and all communication has any active communication that we have we communicate to someone else with an intended effect in mind. That doesn't mean it's malevolent. It doesn't mean that the intentions are sinister. They they could be sinister, but they might not be. Right? I mean when you send an email to somebody at work and you go, well, I've sent this email to you um and I I would like you to do this for me or could you help me with this or can you answer my question like you're doing that because you have an intended effect in mind that doesn't make the intended effect sinister it, you know it certainly could be right? <laughs> so it's important that we ask what does the creator of this Want me to believe? How would they want me to act in the world? And these questions, guys, going through this process will, I think, radically change the way you read and interact with pop cultural texts. It'll turn any mindless viewing, you know, sometimes we just need to have some mindless viewing of something, right? But I remember years ago kind of walking through some similar process like this with some students, and they came into The classroom one day and they went, you, you, you ruined the movies for us. (laughs) We went to the movies and we were watching this movie. I can't remember what it was. And, uh, and and we were like reading, we were reading and analyzing, you know, the movie (laughs) and I just wanted to watch it and just assimilate it. I, I, you know, I think there's room for that, but I also think it's really important that we realize that these are the primary avenues by which values and stories about God are being communicated to us. And if we don't have tools in our tool belt to try to evaluate, to interact with those, we'll both be missing out on a tremendous opportunity that we have to see the light of Christ, to share the light of Christ in the world with others. But we'll also be risking the possibility, if we just are mindless assimilators of cultural texts and popular culture, we risk the possibility that our own value structure can be hacked, and that our loves can be transformed, and ultimately, that what we worship as God might become that which is not the source of what is true, good, and beautiful. Thanks for listening to today's episode. I couldn't do it without the Deep Talks Patreon community. I want to give special thanks to Jason N., Luke Hartstock, Tim Kingsbury, Paul Reese. Thank you for going above and beyond the call of duty and giving extra support to this podcast. If you wanted to support this podcast, you could become a member of the Deep Talks Patreon community. There are bonus episodes there. I give out other sorts of content that I think might be helpful as you're trying to go on this theological journey, this journey into the world of Christian theology and philosophy, Uh, give out things like, you know, graphs, other content. I've got a free recommended reading list that I've put recently on there. You can check that out and download that for free, even if you're not a member of the Patreon community. But if you are, there are tiered rewards. Uh, If you don't want to give that way, maybe you just go, hey, I love today's episode and I'd like to support you just today. I'm also going to start putting um, the link to how you could just support me directly via the Cash App. If there's a gift that you want to give, gladly receive it. I'm thankful for the work that I get to do in this podcast. I'd like to be able to continue doing that, but uh, it certainly requires support to be able to do that. So thank you for those that are supporting and are considering doing so, I, I would gladly receive whatever you think is uh, worth worth giving. There's other ways that you could also back this podcast and help other people discover it, to go on their own journey into seeing the intersection of theology with everything in their life. Uh, another way is just by leaving a review on Apple Podcasts, whatever you think, how many of our stars you think this is worth. Um, you don't have to butter me up. <laughs> you really don't. But what I, I love about that is that it's actually the primary way people just are the primary platform people are going to for listening to podcasts. So all the reviews that happen there, it kind of pushes this up the queue. Um, and so if you know, you, you wanted people maybe to discover this instead of, I don't know, into Joel Olstein or something like that. I just, I wish I was as happy as Joel Osteen. I wish I had that smile. That would be pretty sweet. But, um, so if you want, th- you want that to happen, then, um, you know, leaving a review certainly helps that it helps other people discover it too. And you can certainly share with other people. As always, I invite you to reach out to me. Maybe you have objections even as you listen to today's podcast and you go, Hey, I disagree. Well, feel free to share that disagreement. I'm all about having nuanced dialogue with people. And we learn as we just talked about today, we learn so much from each other in the process of dialogue we all have biases, we all have blind spots in the way that we see God in the world. And so exchanging those ideas is one way that we expand our field of vision and we see more than what we've seen before. So you can reach out to me on Twitter at Paul That's a great place to have at least good dialogue. Also, if you become a member on Patreon, uh, you can certainly message me there too. I, I respond back to all the messages I receive on Patreon. So Maybe if you're considering doing that, it's a good way to have dialogue with me about maybe the things you learned, you liked, you disliked about today's episode or any other episode. Thanks again for listening in. Thank you all for your support. I hope you all are staying healthy and safe out there. And until next time, we'll talk again soon.